podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of the Stretty Cast. Um, this week we're, we're starting our 15 minutes extra plus for Patreons. So at the end of the podcast it'll be something different, but we're doing a bit of a feature show this week and I'm happy to be joined by um, an old friend of the podcast, I suppose I call him a Stretty Cast veteran. Mike, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, just under house quarantine in Battersea at the moment. I managed to get out to do my, um, my one government mandated piece of exercise a day. But uh, that's it. It's really strange because where I am is very, very close to central London. You're about to see, I'm pretty much on the river, and um, it's 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 very, very odd at the moment. Uh, very, very strange. I was in the city on Monday. And there was no one around. How do they plan on regulating your one bit of exercise? Because you're someone exercises a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I noticed when. So I've been because all the gyms are closed. I've just been training out in the park. I've got new routines devised just to be able to work out in the park because times like this, especially with no work to go to, it is really important to get yourself moving and keep some kind of routine. I mean, that's going to be a big thing for all of us that we have to deal with over this. I was probably going to last for at least three months, I think, this period that we're going through right now. Um, I noticed uh, police doing patrols around, just around the park. I mean, they closed off the outdoor gym, but there was a few guys who decided they were going to jump in there anyway, like idiots. And uh, the police uh, zipped around when I was partway through my workout. I was on a plot of grass just adjacent to the, that outdoor gym area, and the police came and just kicked them out. A lot, a lot of these idiotic stunts that we're seeing in the media are just basically mm. youngsters of all ages, I guess, but these social media challenges. Now, look, I, I'm not talking about the harmless one. I'm not talking about the toilet roll. The, are kicking balls into dustbins. But I've seen something the other day of someone licking a toilet seat. And like, absolute crazy things. Did he, these people obviously don't know how serious um, COVID-19 is. And they're obviously playing a total blind eye for people dying. But these little jokes are just not funny. Like, who's, who's laughing at them? I don't know. Um, these kind of social media influences always puzzle me because... I don't know actually what it is that they do. Yeah. They don't. They're not journalists. They're not uh, creative artists. Um, then none of the content seems to have any meaning whatsoever. Bacteria um, liquors, we'll call them. Yeah. So I'm not. Um, I'm not entirely sure, really. And that seems to be a problem I've noticed around here in London. There's still big groups of people hanging around together, despite the fact that they've been told not yeah. to. And the police yeah. have been given the powers to disperse groups of more than two, even hand out fines or even arrest people, and they're still doing it. There's a pub about five doors down from me, which is obviously closed, but all the outdoor seating is still there. And uh, my uh, flatmate walked past there last night and saw 14 people in that close quarters outdoor seating area of beer that they just bought from the pub. Um, and what p- really pisses me off is that, A, it is dangerous to people our age, whether yeah. you've got underlying health conditions or not. This is far more deadly than the flu. Mm-hmm. Um and B, if they've got older relatives or relatives with health conditions and they end up picking it up and passing it on to them, I mean, are they going to be able to live with that 
on their conscience. Mm. It's just bizarre. Um, people need to really start taking it seriously. I suspect both on both sides of the RSC there could be a total lockdown on the way within the next week. Yeah, if it people is. don't listen to the advice that's been given because I think it's the only way that we're going to get on top of this. Yeah, it, 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 it's sad that it has to go to that extreme. I don't think anyone wants a lockdown. I know we spent last week's podcast at large discussing... Um, COVID-19 and so on so we're not going to do that again this week but I just want to I suppose everyone are going to do updates on, on this because it is affecting the football world massively um, and that's why we're doing a feature podcast we might come up with a great idea of going through some historic games um, and the first one we're going to look at is the, the FA Cup semi-final replay against Arsenal in 99 um, obviously important to the season we went on to win the treble but this, this game this game is massive to that as well Mike and I, I believe you've done lots of homework on it well, I watched the game uh, a couple of days ago now and uh, I did a bit of research into the background of the season as well. This wasn't just a, 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 for a place in the in the FA Cup final. United and Arsenal were going hammering some for the league as well. You couldn't put a pit of paper between them. This was a title race that went down to the very last day, as we all know. Um, United basically had those three games in the space of about 14 days, which essentially won the treble. Um, so, go back and you watch this game now. And I watched it the other night. It's the first time I've watched it probably more than 10 years in its entirety. I've only seen the little bits and pieces. This was winner-take-all. I think if Arsenal had gone on and won this, if Arsenal had won this game, I'm absolutely certain they would have gone on and won the league as well. And would have won the FA Cup. Mm. I think that's how much was at stake. And these were two teams who I think were by a little bit like City and Liverpool in the last two years, by far and away, better than everybody else in the league. I mean, you had a good Chelsea side who were in and around. I think Jean-Luc was the manager at that point. But United and Arsenal were much, much better than everyone else, not just in terms of the ability, the players that they had, their approach to fitness, the diets. You can really see it in this game. And we'll go to it in more detail in a minute once we've gone through the teams and everything. But I was taken aback by the pace that this game's played at. Literally, within right from the kickoff, United punted the ball out to David Beckham out on the right, who actually played more centrally in this game who instantly swung a ball into the box and the ball was pinging back and forth for the entire first 90 minutes. And even when you get into extra time and you can see a lot of the players are really starting to flag, it's still just end-to-end, just slaloming from one end of the pitch to the other. It is one of the best... I mean, I this game because it's one of my favourite games, but it is one of the best games of uh, football in England yeah. that I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. No, I really enjoyed it. So, so many things we can get into, like watching players chase chase other, like packs of dogs and I mean the pressing was different then the, the the idea around football was different then it wasn't so much neither team was out to to get to gain most possession it was much more direct um tackles were a bit more meaty than what we see nowadays which but yeah in terms focus more on the game itself from the very beginning Alex Ferguson made some risks um took took some players out and rested them with one eye on the the upcoming game against Juventus Surely, as you kind of looked into that, with both teams challenging for the title, this was a really, really good Arsenal side, a really, really good side defensively. He took those risks in, in a semi-final replay and they paid off, well, for the most part. Yeah, that's right. I think what you have to remember, this this season and the season before, really, I think was the beginning of Ferguson really evolving tactically, um, having players that could do more than one specific role in the team. This is one of the other things that I think set United and Arsenal apart. I mean, I'll go through what the teams were for both sides in a minute. Obviously, United have made a few changes. If you look at the first leg, both Cole and York started in the in the, in the first game uh, of the semi-final, which finished 0-0. Fairly uneventful game, that one. Uh, but actually, going into this game, he took them both out and played Sheringham and Solskjaer. Interesting thing was, in the previous five games, York and Cole had scored. Yeah. Uh, so, it's great a season they had. There was some logic behind that. Um, and also, obviously, he didn't play Ryan Giggs in this game. Giggs was sat on the bench. And, and another big sort of absentee, which is kind of overlooked now, but he's such an important player for us, was Danny Sewin. Danny Sewin was an enormously important player for the mm. team. Phenomenally consistent, could play both right-back and left-back, could even double up as a winger if he needed him to. And also terrific dead ball taker as well, which is something that a lot of people don't realise. But he was basically United's set-piece taker before David Beckham, um, by and large. One and of the and open... he was left out for Phil Neville as well. One of the and opening stages. And obviously, Jasper Bunker's coming in for Ryan Giggs. One of the opening stages that I really enjoyed um, 
Phil Neville t- t- taking out Dennis Bergkamp. I know he, he slotted in for Irwin, which obviously, as you mentioned, was a massive, massive thing. But Phil Neville played very well. He did, he did. Um, United were excellent, actually. If you look at normal time, United were the better team. It was only really an extra time that I think Arsenal took control of the game when United were a man down. And also, we'll get into this bit later on, some of the changes Arsenal made. I'd sort of quickly go through the teams here. Yeah. Um, if you looked, looked at Arsenal's lineup, and this is one of the things, if you look at Arsenal and United's teams, they loosely kind of line up as 4 4 2, but they're not really conventional 4 4 2s at all. No. And this is where you can see that Wenger and Ferguson were so far ahead. If you look at Arsenal, that classic back five, Seaman, Dixon, Adams, Keon, and Winterburn, pretty much picks itself. The only change you make is every now and then Steve Bolt will come into the team. Uh, you have Vieira and Patina middle who were, for me, the only midfield partnership that were equal to anything United could put forward. Mm. Um, and then you had Parler and Jumberg on the wings. Um, Overmars is carrying an injury, so he didn't start the game. Um, and then you had Bergkamp and Anelka up front. Interesting thing, if you look at those two wide players Arsenal got, neither of them were really, I would consider, traditional wide players. Jumberg was a guy who would generally cut inside and try and exploit space to score goals. And Parler was sort of more suited to play as an attacking central midfielder, so would often cut inside as well. And if you look at United's teams, I think part of Ferguson's thinking was to counteract that. So Schmeichel was in goal, obviously. Yap and Ronnie Johnson, who played a lot of games that season, centre-back, really, really good player. Ronnie Johnson yeah. could play central midfield, could play centre-back, even filling as a sweeper if you need to put an extra man in there as well. Very, very good on the ball. Um, tactically, a very clever player. Um, you have Phil Neville at left-back, as you said, covered in for Denny Serving, Gary Neville at right-back. Uh, Blomquist played in the left-wing, actually had a pretty solid game as well, as the right-wing, which is well, a backup yeah. option at the end. David Beckham on the right, and then you have Keenan Butt in the middle and Sheringham and Solskjaer up front. If you look at the cases of Sheringham and Burkamp, both of them obviously dropped off a lot, which then allowed other <laughs> players to sort of advance into space. But, so that, another thing that really stands out about this game is Paul Scholes being sat on the bench. We all think about Scholes now as a world-class dead cert starter. At this point in time, he did not start every week for Manchester United. He started some games, but the bigger games, Ferguson did tend to go with Nicky Butt to provide a little bit of extra cover and a bit more force in the midfield. This was probably um, around and- the time, though, a school transitioned as a player. You know, from, from going as that kind of, when he came into the team as kind of a second kind of striker behind the front man. And then into, mm-hmm. as he gradually became a midfielder. So that was probably around that period, too. Yeah, Nicky Butt was also absolutely superb midfield player. Again, he was kind of oddly one of those players who I think was appreciated more outside of England than he was within England. Tactically, very disciplined, good on the ball, tremendous energy, closed people down brilliantly. I would also be able to, was also with Keane, was actually very effective at United. We know pressing wasn't the same then, but they could allow United to press higher up the pitch. Yeah. And if you look, especially the first half, Vieira and Petit are completely anonymous. Uh, Keenan Buck just shut them out of the game with the assistance of Beckham, who a lot of people forget Beckham was basically a converted central midfielder who ended up playing out wide because of his ability to deliver the ball. But he spent a lot of this game cutting in field um, and giving United a basically an extra man in the middle. With Sheringham also sort of dropping in between the space between uh, the central midfielders and the forwards, you know, Arsenal were really just overwhelmed through the middle. And United could afford to sacrifice that space at wide because they knew Jumberg and Parler were not going to attack down the flanks. The field was completely shut out of the game. United was so effective. And I think that was reflected in the start of the game. I think it was about 15, 16 minutes in where United scored. Yeah, fantastic goal too. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, like I was saying before, the, the pace of this game was absolutely incredible Just within 30 seconds. Something that, that I was observing as, as the game was going on, and you kind of touched on it with the midfield, there was always the discussion, of course, with Vieira and Keane and throughout the whole battles and so on. It just watching the game back, I don't know if it's my United bias or what, but it's so clear that Roy Keane was a far superior midfielder, Patrick Vieira. I, th- I thought it was so clear watching it again. Everything he does is a lot, lot better. Have, have, we, have we almost forgotten how good Vieira was over a consistent period of time? Or am I looking at a back of bias? I, I don't know, but I, th- I just thought looking, looking at the game, one was a, a man and one was a boy. I think there's definitely an element of that. Keane was already a more experienced player yeah. in midfield at this level for United. Vieira, I think, had come from Inter Milan, but he hadn't really played... Uh, sorry, AC Milan, but he hadn't really played that many games for AC. 
I mean, it was very clear that the leader of the midfield for Arsenal was Emmanuel Petit. Yeah. And that was very clear. He was the one that really stamped his mark and the game went on as, as, as the game went on. Um, you also have to remember, and that is part of the thing you have to remember with Arsenal, Vieira was a fantastic player. Yeah, of course. I always felt he was better going forward than he was coming backwards. Everyone talks about him as a holding midfielder. Actually, remember it was about three years after this that, that Vieira was linked quite heavily with United. United were interested. And people wondering whether Vieira and Key could play together. They would have been absolutely superb yeah. together, actually. They would have complemented each other very, very well. But if you look, you had Emmanuel Petit this period in time and in the next sort of successful Arsenal team, he had Gilberto Silva essentially acting as his guard dog, kind of in the way that Emmanuel Petit did as well. But the fact that United had two, essentially two players like Emmanuel Petit playing in the middle, it just shut Vieira out of the game, yeah. especially and it allowed Beckham to be able to advance through the middle and make the runs that you usually would have associated with Paul Scholes, actually. But Beckham several times made kind of was hanging around making runs to the edge of the box to try and get the end of things, and that. That was the the, the the opening goal. The G7 was a wonderful finish. I mean, there was a, a lovely little flick on, I think it was, by Sheringham after the ball had come in. Just lovely little flick on by Sheringham. Ball comes into the edge of the D. And Becker's about 30 yards out. And he hits this ball beautifully off his right foot. Seaman's at full stretch. And he's well positioned as well. He's just outside his six-yard box. It's running a shot. He's coming in for range as a goalkeeper. That's exactly where you want to be. He gets nowhere near the ball. I think, watching the goal back, I had to replay it a few times. I think it, it, the movement of the ball is insane. As you mentioned, she's shooting from distance. The ball actually swerves around his body. He's no, he's nowhere near it. Nowhere near, near getting to it. And I was watching that too. Did you notice when players were taking touches? I know it's obviously 20 or so years ago. When players were taking touches and the ball was that bit heavier, they had to be a bit more careful. And nowadays, mm. you, you see midfielders, you see Pogba and stuff, and they're kind of almost flamboyant on the ball. They... They rolled the ball with their studs and stuff. There wasn't much of that going on in this game. And when players got the ball, they carried out their job. Roy Keane was very careful on the ball. and His distribution was fantastic. But wouldn't we have to mention in terms of distribution? Peter Schmeichel's balls were absolutely incredible. The direct balls to Sheringham were almost landing on his head time and time again. And that, that was massive towards United. I'm not saying United were hoofing the ball up the pitch. But the game was a lot more direct then. It, it it was much more the aim the aim of the game was to get the ball out and get up the pitch as quick as you can as opposed to nowadays where we have I suppose philosophies and so on about keeping the ball and draining the opponent. Yeah, definitely. Schmeichel really in many ways is the archetype I think, or certainly the prototype for very much what you got for the modern goalkeeper. Hmm. He you know really came to providence just after the back pass rule was introduced, which really just ruined a lot of goalkeepers and defenders. Really, ruined Liverpool's league hopes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a uh, England had a defender back in the early nineties called Des Walker. He's got about forty old caps. He played for Sheffield Wednesday. Looked like a terrific player. Once the back pass rule came in, he was finished. Um, and it was I think that finished also finished John Lukic, who was traditionally Arsenal's first choice goalkeeper, George Graham. And really saw him essentially taken out and replaced by David Seaman because David Seaman was much better coming out of his goal, mm. being proactive, distributing to his centre halves. Again, you know, we talk about what set these two teams aside from the rest of the Premier League. You look at those two goalkeepers, yeah. they really were formed the basis of a lot of modern goalkeeping. Really, not just commanding your six yard box, but the whole area, and even probably within your whole third of the field, which is really what is. A requisite now for a top-level goalkeeper is to anything within 30 yards of your goal, you have got to be in command of that area in time to be centre-halves. And Schmeichel and Seaman typified that. Both of them were excellent in this game. I have to say, Seaman particularly made some absolutely superb saves in this game. Um, but someone else wanted to, you know, I mentioned Beckham. I thought Beckham was superb in this game. You talk yeah. about efficiency on the ball and we talk about technique. Really a testament to actually how good his touch on the ball was technically superb, very rarely wasted it. And a lot of his work in this game was actually done through the middle. So he was playing balls in much tighter spaces than he was used to. Um, and and my, one of my sort of personal favourite players in this game as well was Teddy Sheringham. He was just excellent in that time he was on the pitch. I think he played about 75 minutes before he came off. Um, I think he came off, I think it was after Keane was red-carded, which we'll get to later. But um, he was superb in this game not just great in the air and provided a platform for Smeichel to send those direct balls to, as you mentioned, but his technique was so good 
that he could actually bring the ball down. He always seemed to... He was, Demetar Berbatov was quite a similar player to Teddy Sheringham. They seemed to be able to create space and time where it didn't exist. And it allowed the whole team to just advance forward. And that caused Arsenal so many problems, really, up until the red card. And Arsenal got that equaliser. United was so on top because of that tactic. And maybe Mike. United tried it later on a little bit more rudimentary fashion, actually using Fellaini doing that same role. I think Van Hal used it a lot, which was quite effective for a while. But Sheringham was, was an outstanding player. And it just showed you the options that United had. That he was offered a secondary option for United. The the Arsenal goal, Dennis Bergkamp, you, you briefly touched on that. Fluky, got a nice deflection. Very much so. I mean, it was such a... If you'd have looked at the path of where that shot was going before, I think it comes off Yapstan. I'm basically classes as an own goal because that shot is going straight at Peter Smeichel. Peter Smeichel's yeah. already read where the shot's going. And you can actually see when you watch one of the slow motion replays, Burkamp before... Just as it's deflecting off Stan, Burkamp turns away in disgust because he, he's not hit the ball how he wanted to. You know, he was something of a perfectionist, Burkamp. But yeah, it was, it was huge, huge deflection. And that, I felt, along with the introduction of Mark Overmars into the game, really was what turned that game around. Because Overmars, even though he wasn't 100% fit, he made, I forgot what a player he was. He was absolutely brilliant when he came on. He was just terrorised poor Gary Neville hmm. was just getting turned inside out on that right hand side um, by Mark Overmars he was carrying an ankle injury he was probably only about 70% fit he, as good as he was he was quite an injury prone footballer he was a big player for Arsenal the season before when he won the double but he just absolutely tormented United really and um, kind of gave Burkamp and Anelka a little bit more of a lease of life because Anelka particularly Burkamp had had touches on the ball but Anelka had been almost entirely anonymous apart from the disallowed goal that he yes, scored which yeah. was rightly disallowed by the way but, but but that was it wasn't it you mentioned that that he was totally anonymous which he was but the United team on the other side they were all at, they were all taking everything was going to plan but it, it all stemmed from the very start I felt simplistic almost directions from the likes of Keane and that doing the easy thing get obviously the aim to get the ball forward but just simple passing and defending in groups like dogs pressing it was a total different type of pressing I know I mentioned that than what we see nowadays nowadays it seems to be more kind of calculated and to be running into certain boxes and to push people into certain areas but this was different this was like also a mental physical thing it was people crowding you down in numbers quick and then as well as that the referees were much more lenient those days in in the late 90s they were more lenient than they are now they weren't exactly letting players away with murder but there were some tough tackles and there were some ones there i would say definitely nowadays you'd be walking a tin line like the one Roy Keane got booked for in the first half the yellow card so some referees <laughs> nowadays are going to send you off for that yeah i mean he just sighed burkamp down <laughs> absolutely cut him down the thing that really struck me is that burkamp just got straight up yeah. and walks off yeah um, which is you know, we, we, one of the things that's, that's kind of overlooked, really, that people really forgot about Arsenal later on is they did become a slightly softer team. This Arsenal team, they were tough. They were really, really tough, which is why they were able to really go toe-to-toe with United. If you look at people like Burkamp and Vieira and Petit, yes, they were technically very good players, but they were hard as well. And yeah. They could really mix it up with anybody. Yeah. Um, and I think... Later iterations of that team, where you saw people like Gilberto Silva coming in, so Campbell came into the team, people like Lauren at fullback as well. They were tough players. That was really what Arsenal lost as time went on. They lost that toughness, which was kind of reinforced by the back four that they had as well, which helped a lot. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the first half hour is one of the best first half hour, one of the best performances I've ever seen from the United team. They should have been freeing a lot because yes. it was within about a seven minute period of the goal that United scored. Yeah, two of a great chances. There was a lovely um, uh, bit of uh, play down the left and side by Blomquist, who I thought had a pretty good game. Cuts in from the left and set up Sheringham, who just comes into his feet on his left foot. One of the things about Sheringham is he could go equally well on his left or his right. He's pretty much in the middle of the goal. He just needs to hit the target and it's in. And he somehow contrives to put it wide. I have no idea how. And then about a minute after that, as another ball comes in, I think it's a set piece from Beckham. He's whipping one in from the left-hand side. In swinger, one of those classic clicked headers. He scored one for England off a Beckham delivery a couple of years later against Greece. 
and just goes wide of the post. If one of those two had gone in, United would have gone on and won the game comfortably, I think. They were just overwhelming us. I feel like if they'd have got a second goal within that half an hour, they could have gone on and won the game about 4 or 5 nil. They were just overwhelming us at this point. And Arsenal really, really um, struggled to cope. I mean, the first note I have of Nicholas and Elkery's 40 minutes in, where a ball comes in and he hits it first time and it's decided that it puts only a half chance really. Other than that, I think Dennis Burkamp had a, uh, an opportunity where he, he there's a lovely little maze dribble for a couple of United defenders, but he just can't quite, he knocks the ball slightly ahead of him, can't quite get on it enough to hit enough power and it just goes straight into Schmeichel. But, by the time he got to the end of that first half, he thought, I don't remember United being that dominant yeah. <laughs> in the first half. Yeah. It really formed, I think, a, a template for um, for a lot of United big game performances under Ferguson. But when you mentioned the pressing, the one team that sprang to mind when I watched this United team play was Diego Simeone's Athletic Madrid. Yes. Very much press yeah. and play in that same vein. In fact, Simeone, I think, had mentioned that he took the United team I think of 2007-8 as a bit of an inspiration for how he set up his team because of the way that they would press so furiously in numbers. What they would tend to do is they would, rather than just press all over the pitch, they would force, they would basically look for triggers. Another team that does this, I think, is um, if anyone has seen Getafe in the last two years in Spain who are a very effective side at doing this, They wait for certain triggers. Essentially, what United would do is they would wait for the ball to go to out wide and then they would start shutting players down and they would stop the ball getting into the middle, getting to the midfielders, getting to Burkham, essentially just cutting off the supply line, which is why you didn't see much of any of those central attacking Elka, players yeah. throughout the game. Yeah, so that, yeah, that, that, was, that was the reason in which the Anelka struggled to have any significant impact on the game but Arsenal in general in, in the first half and in comparison to how many chances we created um we were far, far more dominant and I, I i i thought that really deserved winners by by some margin absolutely in fact for the first 20 minutes of the second half united carried on much of the same vein song show had a fantastic chance about an hour in he beats the offside trap I think Arsenal just assumed he was offside, but Oli was very, very good at beating, at playing off the shoulder of the last defender and, and just waiting for the moment to make the run. And he somehow just put it wide. I, I watched that for, of all people, to put that wide because he was so great in that position. It was almost a classic, you, I've, you know, obviously we know what happens in the game, but it was a classic thing, Solskjaer off the last defender, he's running through, he's beating the offside yeah. trap. You never see this anymore, by the way. This just shows how much the game series. The amount of times you see players pretty much running through unmolested one-on-one with a goalkeeper from about 40 yards yeah, out. Much, yeah. And he always used to put those in, usually coming in off the left-hand side. He would come in so he could come in onto his right foot. And he put it wide. And then there was yeah. another one, um, Blomquist had another chance a couple of minutes later. Another wonderful little touch flick pass by Sheringham. Sent right. Blomquist through, cutting off the left. And it just, they were all over them. This game, by the way, if you're listening, is available for free on, on YouTube, the full, full thing. So you can watch it back. And while in quarantine, best idea to do. Um, it's a classic. But just on that, you mentioned Solskjaer is missing. And he missed one in the first half too. Skied it over the bar, was square to him inside the box and send it rose-ed. And I was just sat there thinking, like, there's no way if, if MUTV were showing recaps of this game that they'd include that now as in his manager. Not all hope. No. No, he, he had another great chance where he just hit the where he ran he ran through clear again and then he just hit this up straight to Seaman. All he had to do was just kind of give in the eyes and put it either side. It was incredible, really. And I think around that time Beckham had another chance as well, which uh, for anyone else he would have said was a half chance, but for Beckham, you, you would have expected him to hit the target. Um, but I, I, this this game really turned just after seventy minutes. I think an El had a goal that was really offside, and it was offside. He was quite correct. He was he was a fair way off. But that just seemed to give us a little bit of a jolt. Mark Overmars had come on about five minutes earlier. And then Keane got sent off by um, our friend David Ellery, and Keane's best friend, David Ellery, who, I, if I remember rightly, had sent off Keane earlier in the season in a game at Anfield as well against Liverpool, which was 2-2, where United had been... I, I, no, it was not wrong, Keane. I think it might be Dennis Irwin. It sent another United player off against Liverpool. Again, United got absolutely bossing 
basically just turned the side of the game back into Liverpool's favour and they came back and got a point. Um, but Ellery was notorious. He always, I don't know, he always seemed to be around when these flashpoints in Roy Keane occurred. I think it was Ellery who was the referee when he took a swing at Alan Shearer at Newcastle yeah. as well and he set him off in that game. He's always around, didn't he? He was whispering in Keane's ear. He was setting them off. Yeah. Oh, there was one. I'll tell you what, there was one or two things where he said something to Roy Keane, man. I'm not sure a referee would get away with that behaviour now. But, but even after but that, right, was a... it, at the start of the game, sorry to jump in, I have, it, I have this down as a note. Roy Keane at the very start of the game, I think it's after the challenge on Bergkamp, is seen shouting at referee whatever, fuck off or whatever. Yes, Re- I remember this. Yeah. Really, really clear. It's something like that. And uh, and there's there's nothing made of it nowadays. There'd be uproar on social media, um, swearing into the camera. But also there was another point where when he took out Bergkamp, it could be the same tackle. He's looking down and he can see from the mouth fucking trampy shouting. And then Bergkamp doesn't do anything, right? He just gets back up and says nothing. But Keane does not give a shit. You know what I mean? He's just out <laughs> for blood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that really summed up what that game was about. And in the, in the, in the first game, which was nil nil, Arsenal had a player red carded as well. I think um, Nelson Vivas, who was one of those kind of collection of long forgotten Arsenal defenders <laughs> that Wenger brought in um, to kind of supplement that old back four that they had. And he elbowed one of the United players in the face, if I remember rightly. So it was just, there was usually a red card in a United Arsenal game at this period. It was just the way it was. I don't think it was. Because they were, they weren't any dirtier than any other team. I think going around back then, they were tough players, but they, they the weren't any dirtier. They had their fair share of players who could mix it in the dark arts, but it was just the level of competition yeah, yeah. so high. I still, I don't know if I've seen to this day. Maybe I don't know if I've seen two teams fighting for the title competing at that level. For, for about five years in the no, way that those two teams so. did since I, I not not really especially with the, the same two managers in charge the whole period I mean United had sort of maybe ding-dongs with, with Chelsea in the 2000s you know uh, after Abramovich's money came in but no but the rivalry between United and Arsenal at, at that period was, was the pinnacle uh, oh absolutely and I don't think anything's matched it. anything has come close to it since at all, really. Um, Name another rivalry in English football where a pizza has gone flying towards someone. <laughs> a pizza? Uh, not, no, absolutely, absolutely not a lot. I, I, um, I mean, there's, there's been, I, I think there's been rivalries lower down the English leagues that have been pretty vicious. Um, but in terms of a top-level rivalry, the only thing I've seen like this would have been Barcelona Real Madrid during the period. Guardiola and Mourinho were the managers. That's the only thing that well, really matches that level. That was toxic, but but that that was so toxic at the level that it crept into the Spanish national team, and Mourinho was loving that. Yeah, he did. He did. And uh, <laughs> one of the things that really strikes me about this period is that um, you, you watch Fergus around this period of time, and this is where he really began his quest to wind up managers. And you must you watch Fergus, and it's very clear where Mourinho got a lot of his psychological approach to the game from, was definitely from Ferguson. Absolutely no question about about that in my mind. Although, I, you know, although for me, I think Ferguson got a lot of his approach at this point and going forward from Italy. Okay. And um, I, I, I think you can see it both both in terms of how he approached the, the media and I think also how he approached them, um, how and he approached the game and, as well. And, and, and his standout figures. Pardon? And his standout figures, maybe... It's them, that's it. Um, I would have said um, people like, um, I think Ferguson revered a lot of the top Italian countries, so certainly Trapattoni, okay. sort of this huge media figure. At that time, Trapattoni was still one of the top managers <clears throat> in the world. You look at... Um, that wasn't when he was managing Ta- Ireland, was it? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Certainly Marcello Lippi was a huge influence on Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Um, and that Juventus team. When I mentioned the sort of United had a few players that could fulfil different roles, you looked at Beckham, um, you looked at someone like Sheringham, he could jump as a whole, someone like Ronnie Johnson. Uh, Philip Neville could actually play both left and right back right. as well. 
a lot of that really came from those games we came up against Juventus and when we played in Europe when Ferguson felt like a flat 4-4-2. And I think we just assume United played a flat 4-4-2 all the time this season. That wasn't the case. It was a little bit more fluid than that. And I think what you saw, really, this was one of those games where you could see that influence that coming from abroad. It was very much at its early stages and nothing quite to the same extent as you got. I think after after we'd lost those quarterfinals in the Champions League to Real Madrid and Barcelona in successive seasons, which was where he really altered his approach, where he went to kind of 4-5-1 and 4-3-3 and played a completely different brand of football. But you could see the early stages of this in this game. And it wasn't just important, I think, in terms of, you know, as you said, it was, for me, probably the greatest rivalry in English football, really since... I would say, I would say maybe go back to Leeds Liverpool in the sixties, late sixties, early seventies. I think would have been the closest, or um, it were two teams that really, really didn't like each other. Um, or you could go sort of that personal kind of rivalries between uh, Brian uh, Brian Clough and, and Don Revy mm. and sort of Clough's um, Derby County. But again, but not for this sustained period of time. Not five or six years in the way that this carried on football. This pretty much spanned from. The moment Wenger came in, because Arsenal were not the second best team when Wenger came into that club. Oh. The moment he came in, they became the main challenger to United. Slightly off topic, but before we get on to Giggs' goal, just you, you mentioned Brian Clough, and I, I want to get your your opinions on Brian Clough as 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 a person. <laughs> as as a person, uh, as a person, he was an arsehole. He was an awful human being. He was an absolutely <laughs> awful human being. Incredible manager. But an awful human being, and there's no getting away from that. Do you see traits in his management, in perhaps the likes of Mourinho, um, maybe not so Mourinho, but Roy Keane, and the kind of problems Roy Keane has had in management? He seems to kind of have that stance of what I was managed by Clough, and this is what we did. And Martin O'Neill is the exact same. Um, two players that played mm. under Clough, and it, it's quite Roy Keane has similar attributes in his coaching, I would think. Yes, I do. I don't... The thing that... that Not the good ones. A, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think O'Neill, certainly in his heyday, was tactically actually quite a good manager. Hmm. But uh, but he, Martin O'Neill also had some very good coaches around him, which I don't think Roy Keane had. Hmm. A, a lot of the thing that's often forgotten about Brian Clough is Peter Taylor, his assistant, who scouted a lot of the key players for Clough. Hmm help bring them in and really devised a lot of the tactical game plans that Forrest, that both Derby County and then Nottingham Forest so successfully used going forward and why you were able, why they were able to take seemingly unfashionable players and construct them into something else. And one thing I think Ferguson and Clough have or had in common, but Ferguson was better than Clough at, was um, not buying into his own hubris so much that yes. he wouldn't bring, he wouldn't change up his coaching staff and his assistants to give him different ideas. Mm. And again, this was the first season that you saw that as well. Brian Kidd had gone, Steve McLaren had come in. I think there was maybe one or two other changes in the coaching staff as well for this season because I think Ferguson just felt he needed to, he needed to really freshen things up a bit. Um, and and you could really, I think you saw that, which is why. Obviously, Dwight York came from Villa, but if you look at his other big purchases, his own purchases came from abroad. They didn't come from within England. And this was around a period of time where Ferguson started identifying players that were going to help United compete on a continental level. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about the moment I can't wait to get to. The, the, moment, <laughs> the, moment, the moment of genius when the world was showing the hairiest chest ever. Yeah, I mean, so this is this came in. Um, it's about five minutes into the second half of yeah. extra time. Now, at this point, when you watched time, it looked like if anyone was going to score the winning, it would have been Arsenal. One thing that we kind of overlooked was the just before just before the end of normal time, was Arsenal had a penalty. Um, Phil Level, who around this period of time had a habit of giving away key penalties. Gave a couple away for England, one I think which put them at the European Championships in 2000. Um, but uh, obviously, United gave away a penalty. Burkamp had the penalty saved by Schmeichel. 
Um, and then when you got into extra time, it looked like if anyone was going to score, it was going to be Arsenal. Overmars was just tormenting Manchester United's defence. He was just turning poor Gary Neville inside now. He was pulling Yap Stam out of position as well. He was having to yeah. go across and double up. Beckham was having to drop back in to kind of double up to provide some help, which still didn't help at all. Um, and uh, Giggs had come on around about the same point in the game as Overmars had, but Giggs had a very little influence on this game because really the, the tides of the game had changed. I think Roy Keane was sent up about 75 minutes in. But you really saw in the second half of extra time, the players were absolutely knackered. Yeah. Um, uh, but this conversely re- oddly worked in United's favour. I think York had come on right at the beginning of extra time for Oli Solskjaer. Skulls had come for Sheringham. Essentially, Buck was acting as a one-man screen for the back four because Skulls at this point in time was not exactly a defensively disciplined player. Um, but Vieira just plays this really kind of slack pass five minutes into the second half of extra time. You could just look at Vieira and see as he plays that ball, he's absolutely knackered. And you can also watch him as he plays the ball, he realises he's giving it away because Giggs, it's a brilliant bit of reading in the game actually for Ryan Giggs, which is something that you didn't see wasn't really picked up on Giggs until later in his career. He read the game superbly well. Giggs really is sort of hanging around inside left here, um, kind of in between Arsenal's right-hand side and Arsenal's right-sided central midfielder, which I think at this point was still Emmanuel Petit. He just plays this ball and Giggs instantly just sees as soon as he leaves his boot, he says that he's going nowhere near an Arsenal player. And he runs onto it, pretty much picks the ball up at full speed. Um it was Once a Giggs perfect was at full pass. Speed of the ball. Perfect true ball from Theronanta. It was a, it was a wonderful ball, um, but you could just see how stretched the game. This was the amount of space that Giggs was running into as he picked up on this ball. And I, I don't know why I'm gesturing to this in my hands because no one's going to see this in the podcast. Just, there must have been. Would that be right? I think about 25, 30 square yards of space Easily. almost that Giggs Easily. is running into at this point because Petit is. Kind of way back, I think. Um, at this point, Burkamp was the one he was trying to find with a pass, I think, or maybe Kanu, one of the, the, the you know, one of those two. But see, he's just nowhere, <laughs> he's kind of just sat in front of the defense because he can barely run. I think he'd injured himself. Peter Smichael had also injured himself, by the way, at this point, he couldn't even take a goal kick. Giggs runs the ball and picks up the ball full strike, he just bolts his pass of the air in gamely, but he can't get anywhere near him. He's completely out of his. Like Bambi and Icy. At this point, two more Arsenal players. Pardon? Like Bambi and Icy was trying to catch gigs. It was. I mean, he did have that about him. Um, Giggs had this um, dribbling style about him, which um, reminded me a little bit, actually. Giggs almost had that kind of Bambi and Icy look as well. It reminded me a little bit. When you watch watched Arjun Robin, Arjun Robin was a very similar player to Ryan Giggs in the way that he used to play. He was just utilised in a different way. But I think. It's Dixon and Keown. They <coughs> all sort of try and crowd around Giggs to get in. But he's nowhere near. And at this point, it's down to Keown and Dixon. Both of these guys are well into their faces at this point. You've got Dixon, who who just ends up being... Um, the way I'd liken it, what happens to Dixon is... I remember watching Bayern versus Barcelona a few years ago. I think this was when Guardiola was the manager of Bayern. And Lionel Messi just kind of turned Jerome Boateng inside out, literally where you just thought he was going to end up with a dislocated hip, just trying to keep up with the way Messi was turning. That's what happened to Dixon. He's nowhere to be seen. And then Keon just lunges in to try and get the hold of the ball. He's nowhere near Giggs. And by this point, Giggs has pretty much slalomed his way. I would say kind of diagonally adjacent to the end of the chair box. He's about... 10 yards out and he just smashes the ball into the roof of the net um, it's a brilliant finish actually because you think he's in at the near post David Seaman's got that near post covered he just hits it so hard and so fast and so high pretty much the only place that you can actually hit the ball to get it in and it's perfect best and FA Cup board of all time yeah I think I think it is yeah, I, I think, think it is I think significance um, and everything that coming at the period of the game as well that it was 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 incredible, um, and just the scenes afterwards. I mean, it's just basically a pitching race at this point. Ferguson's gone mad. He's <laughs> he's galloped off down the touchline somewhere. <laughs> You've got fans who've just 
just poured out of the, I think it's the whole end that he scores that goal as well at Villa Park fans just poured out it reminded me I remember a few years later United playing Villa in an FA Cup game where they won 3-2 um, I think I sent you a link of that game we watched the highlights of it and it was a similar thing where United were two down and they were three up and mm. United fans just invaded the pitch absolute mayhem you have to remember there's still 10 minutes of the game to comply at this point and the, there's fans on the pitch it's absolutely insane and you just when the game eventually restarts after this, and this goes on, I think it's about five minutes this goes on for before the ref manages to get set everything down. I have no idea whether those fans got back into the stand that they were kicked out. I, I'd be willing to bet good money they just managed to get back in. I wouldn't say their seats, but a seat, whether any United fans sat down, I don't think they were. But you could really see when the game finally restarted, that just knocked any energy Arsenal had left mm. out of them. You could see mm. they just had nothing left. And it, it was quite staggering, really. I, I think if Arsenal had scored the winning goal at that point, I think that would have had the same effects on United. Because that game was played at such a furious pace in the 90 minutes of normal time, I think once something happened to affect the just that psychological adrenaline of the players, it would be very, very difficult to get that back. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it really just knocked the wind right out of them. And United were able to actually see out the game um, pretty comfortably. If I remember at one point, I think Beckham shields the ball. I remember there's one bit that made me laugh towards the end of the game. Beckham takes the ball off to the corner flag to try and um, basically just to waste some time. And I, for me, I, I felt, um, obviously you mentioned Phil Neville, but I thought David Beckham was the man of the match. I thought he was absolutely terrific in this game such a wonderfully disciplined performance. He shields the ball and Dixon just kind of kicks him over and then Becker just sort of sits in front of the ball. <laughs> and yeah, Dixon no. can't get it. And he I, starts, I, I, Dixon starts trying to have a go at Beckham and Beckham's just like looking at him like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I, th- I think Beckham's a good shepherd man in the match. Like, thinking back, one of the, the big things I took from his, his performance and you mentioned is that his influence was also great in the centre and, and that's what kind of that that's what really hurt Arsenal's midfield. But that goes to show you too, and I was rethinking really about it after the match. Beckham's probably underappreciated in the UK as, as as a footballer. You know, a lot of people look at the, the circus that he might have brought to the club and his off-field bits of drama, blah, blah, blah. But he was actually a seriously intelligent footballer too. He, 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 didn't, he didn't just whip in wonderful crosses and free kicks. There was a lot more to his game. And, and that the game we're talking about here is an epitome of that, I thought. Absolutely. I think um, it's it's weird how he's underappreciated when you see someone like... Um, I, I think um, certainly in his younger days, I felt uh, a younger Stephen Gerrard was a very similar kind of player to Beckham was. High energy, probably didn't have the intelligence that Beckham had, but for me, I felt Beckham was one of the best players England have produced, certainly in the last 40 years. Um, I think he's an outstanding footballer. And... You could, and really, what was testament to how good he was was how he delivered in Europe and how he delivered at big clubs in Europe once he left Manchester United. Because generally, what happens with players, at, um, generally happens at players, especially at the big English clubs, is that they tended to to go abroad and they never ever were at that same level because they couldn't adjust or they didn't want to adjust. Beckham fully immersed himself. You know, he wasn't just... I, I think he's underappreciated, not just an intelligent footballer. I think he's a far more intelligent person than he was ever given credit for. Yeah. I think the way he was able to adjust he, quite seamlessly, I felt, to playing in other leagues around Europe and adjusting to the lifestyle quite well, you know, especially in Madrid. They really loved him there. They they um, had a lot of time for him in PSG as well. Um when he won the league. I think it was his last six months in football he won the league with Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, terrific player, a huge fan. And he was such an important part of United at this period. Without him, I mean, I just, I don't see, I don't see any other player around at that time that could have replaced him and, and what he did for that team. What was your favourite thing about the about this match? <sighs> I think, um, I mean, obviously the gigs go, just a sheer moment, but I, I think um, I think the first half an hour as well of the game was yeah. absolutely fantastic. And the scenes at the end of the game where once again the United fans just invaded the pitch mm. and it was just absolute mayhem. 
I suspect someone like Dad and his mates were amongst those people who invented the pitch because I know they were there. So um, it, it was incredible, really, in the beginning of an incredible period at the end of the season. I think that last three weeks, four weeks of the season, it's probably the, the best, I would have said, the best in the club's history. You definitely enjoyed that. Would you like to do another game? I think so. I think so. I'm going to leave it up to you to pick the next one. Yeah, you know, absolutely. What we want to do, actually, we want to leave it up to the Patreons to to tell us what game we want to do next. To subscribe on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash straighty news. Not asking for much, just to support the blog and support what we're doing here. As for classic games, we're open to doing any of them. So let us know because do next week I'll take the I'll take whatever game that we that you vote for and we'll do it that way. As for the end of this podcast, we're gonna look at some, some relevant stories of Manchester United, which I'm gonna sort out in the in the next few minutes. We're gonna take a quick break. So thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Strutty Cast. We've had just a short break. I have Mike back again just to talk about some relevant stories surrounding Manchester United. Um, the big one at the moment isn't our focus, but we're going to look at it. It's Jadon Sancho from Borussia Dortmund. There's been a lot of excitement around Sancho, Mike. Um, have you seen much of him and is it justified? Absolutely. I mean, he's the reason that Christian Pulisic... Is, is not at Dortmund anymore and, and why they were happy to let him go to Chelsea. Um, he's a terrific player. I think one of the things that really stands out about him is his mental attitude. Um, he's had a couple of run-ins. He is a young lad with the, um, with the people upstairs at Dortmund. But he is someone who is very dedicated to bettering himself and being the best possible player that he can be, which I find sometimes the younger players, especially young English players previously, has not always been the case. So I think that's what's really set him apart. He's incredible to watch. If, if you watch him play, he's got a little bit of Iron Robin about him in terms of how he plays out wide and, and the fact that he can contribute quite a few goals as well as providing them for others. Um, I, I, I still think from everything that I hear that it, Chelsea might be the most likely destination just because he is a London lad and he would quite like to come back to London. But we don't really know what the situation is, especially with everything that's going on now and the season's been on pause. I think any, generally any predicted moves you could have had that were going to happen in the summer, you could pretty much write those off right now. Because the transfer window might not go ahead. Um, no, but even if it does, you know, clubs will probably use this time to get some extra preparation in. Maybe do a little bit of extra research going over the statistics. We know that United, for instance, have an incredibly detailed um, statistics set up for the scouting network now where they're measuring all kinds of variables. Clubs are going to be going over this stuff and re-going over old tapes just to maybe see if there's anything that they've missed, players that they've been looking at buying. Um, So it's not just the fact that the, the window might be postponed, which I'm sure it will be because it would make sense. It is also the fact that it, it, this time is going to be used for clubs to reevaluate their priorities, which may also include a little bit of cost cutting as well. I mean, the stories emerging out this week about um, Barcelona looking to sell Grazeman, and there seems to be some real validity to those stories because they need to raise some cash. And of course, he he hasn't really hit the ground running at Camp Nou. But but on that, I, 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 I mentioned this on Patreon on our um, on one of our videos there on this week that the impact that COVID-19 could have on transfers could be massive. Because you look at the teams that should be playing the Champions League or Europa League, I'm using a club like LASK, for example, the money they would get on revenue is massive towards what they can spend in the summer. Now, of course, Manchester United have lots of money. They're not a club that's going to be struggle to, to operate like some clubs might. So the likes of Paul Pogba, Mbappe, um maybe Neymar that would have been kind of maybe expecting big moves in the summer. Maybe that's why we're hearing that Pogba could be staying next season because no one's going to be able to afford him. Um, you know, are Madrid going to prioritise Paul Pogba when they probably need to strengthen in another area? You know, th- these questions, that's what that's what's going to come down to. But Jad and Sancho, everything that, that I've been told on, on, on Sancho, it, it doesn't quite point to done deal at, at some, report, some reports it's suggesting. 
United are definitely leading the race for Sancho. That much is certain, and he's he's keen on the move. Um, initially, Champions League was a big factor behind that, but now we don't know what's going to happen with the remainder of the season. So that much is up in the air. United are most likely to pay the money that's being demanded. They're also most likely to meet Sancho's demands as well as that. The other clubs around there, the Chelsea and Liverpool, I don't quite think are going to go toe-to-toe with United on that front if United are bullish enough. So I think he's United if if they want them. Um, The big fee has put off a lot of clubs. There's no two ways about it, but United desperately need someone on the right side of attack. Um, The team is massively lacking balance. Um, and that that does come into a play when you're a team that bases its football around counter-attacking because if you're playing it down the one flank the whole time you can become quite predictable if you're not you can sort of out on the right-hand side and really punish teams that could go a long way to making this team a team that challenges for top four to a team that might actually challenge um, with, a, with a lethal attack as well as the improvements we've seen in defence this season I don't think it's stupid to to rule that off, depending on what happens in the summer. And if United buy well and get in the likes of Sancho, who could be a star Old Trafford, I think they they won't sack Soldier. No, I think other additions you've got to look at buying some more fullbacks. I think probably in the left and the right. I know we have Wembasaka, but it depends on what happens to Diego. Dallow in terms of what happens on the right, but we certainly need another left back because one of the key things that I think um, has looked a little bit better this season has been um, has been uh, with Wapasaka coming in and the improvement that's made in the right hand side. Um, and I just wonder if the reason I say a left back, I know we've got Brandon Williams, but uh, with this, Social seemed to we haven't been experimenting, he'd been quite successfully implementing three. With Luke Shaw playing uh, almost as a centre half, which then leaves the question: um, Do you uh, do you be better buying a left back or, or buying another centre half and having Luke Shaw chucked out back to the left again? I um, I suspect we may actually be better buying another another left back, but who knows? I said we're not going to be the only club in the market for these players this summer. I think Chelsea is certainly going to be in the market because Frank Lampard wants to get quite a few players that he's got. He wants to get them out. I think I, th- I think um, Lampard knows that they're missing a real star. It's not just that. I think some of the players that he's got, he's not too impressed with. Certainly, he doesn't like their goalkeeper very much. And um, obviously, goalkeeper is an issue for us, but in a different way, which I'm sure we can get onto at some point later. Um, but he clearly doesn't like Alonso. He's not so sure about Aspilicueta. He's got legs anymore. Um, and um, he's also, you know, with Pedro leaving, and I think it's quite likely William will probably leave as well. And um, so they're going to be in the market for these players also. You mentioned left backs, centre backs, and a story that stemmed from Italy this week, and I, I know I, I spoke to you better already, is Diego Godin um, at Inter Milan. And as a player now that we were linked with for two to three years, I'd say on and off, when he was at Atletico Madrid. And he eventually decided that he would part ways for his Inter last summer. Um, that hasn't gone to plan, Mike, has it? No, it's not. Um, obviously, he signed for Inter. I just felt he obviously felt it would be an easy switch for him. But uh, I mean, for us, I think we dodged a bullet there. Um, so good. He was kind of signed um, to sort of add a bit of steel to Inter's defence. Obviously, he was such a key part of Atletico's Madrid's success under Simeone. And for, for me, he was really the best pure defender in the world in his, in his prime. But at Inter, he has looked old this season. And uh, he's pretty much been forced out of the team by a young lad they've got called uh, Bastoni, uh, a young defender who's um, come through at Inter, as well as Skriniar and De Vrij. It's a, they're actually the first choice back three that Conte plays. I don't think um, Gadeen really, uh, especially with his head, doesn't really have the legs. And one of the things about Conte's system, especially playing at the back, he really needs to have the legs because you have one centre half who's going to play in the ball, and then you have the two good centre half, the other two centre halves who will either drop in 
or they'll come out to cover the spaces on the flanks. Um, it's it's a weird thing to say, but it's not too dissimilar system to something that, like, say, Sheffield United play, mm. where you have two centre-halves who overlap to basically make up for the space that's left behind by the wing-backs. Um, and it, it kind of looked like there's a little bit of what I've been seeing, a little bit of the same at United, with essentially Maguire and, and Shaw bringing out, obviously, who are good on the ball, bringing the ball out a little bit more, Lindelof just kind of sitting in and defending, or when he was playing, as he's come back in the last few games, Eric Bailly, yeah. who um, looked really good when he came back in. But just, um, I'm, I'm getting the impression there that you, you think it's a no-go or that United won't be interested after the season he's had. Absolutely not, no. I mean, he doesn't fall into the category of player that United seems to be looking to sign now. United want to sign players younger. If you look at most of the signs they made, Igalo was an exception because he was kind of an emergency because we needed another striker. Um, but even, but generally they're 27 and under, the players that United have been signing. Um, they fulfil certain criteria that United have felt like they needed to fill this season. Obviously, we haven't filled any area of weakness, but it's impossible to go out and buy six or seven players hmm. in one transfer window and hope to integrate them. The players that we have signed, I have to say, it's not often I've said this about United since Ferguson left, or even maybe the last year or so Ferguson was there, but all the players he brought in have improved the team. They have yeah. filled gaps that we needed to fill, um, right from the guys that we signed in the summer um, all the way through to Fernandez. And in fact, you're starting to see also this season, the last season signing of Fred is starting to come good as well yeah. as a shuttling box-to-box midfielder who can break the opposition press, which is what he did at Shakhtar Donetsk. Um, and I look at Gadeen and I'd suggest what we need at the back. We need someone with more pace, especially for the Premier League. That just what, doesn't fit. What... The wages he's going to command? No, I just don't think they're going to go for that either because he's also apparently United are tightening a little bit up on the wage structure as well. That's my biggest fear currently this season with Victor Lindelof. Um, I think I think Harry Maguire, to be honest, he, he hasn't surprised me. I always read Harry Maguire, but I a little bit a little bit surprised, pleasantly surprised by the impact he has had in his first season. I know people question that, oh, he was still making mistakes. Any defender coming to that defense is going to make mistakes for starters, but his all round demeanor on the pitch. His influence has been huge, and I do, I do think he's a top, top centre-back, but he is slow. And my biggest fear when he's partnered by Lindelof, he, who's, not, who's not particularly quick, I just see in the Champions League, they will be caught out as, as a pairing. Um, Bali has that pace. The problem with him is, can he stay fit? And I don't, I, I don't see a big problem either with him being rash. I know, I know a lot of people raise that as, a, as, as, as something that they knock him with, but... That's one of his traits. If you take that out of his game, you're you're. That's not the player that he is. Um, I have no problem with that. My problem is with his injuries, and we don't know is he, is he quite the man to partner him. But Koulibaly is the one in Syria that that's jumping out of me. That is the complete obvious defender that Manchester United should sign, and a player that you could see winning league titles. And that should be surely what the aim is, no? Yes, and also Koulibaly's probably going to be available. Napoli are going to be having a big clear-out this summer. Several of the key players from the last few years, Kulabali, Allen, Hamzik, um, uh, Cleese Mertens, these players uh, are going to be moved on in the summer. They feel like it's due uh, a change. They're probably right for clubs like Napoli. They don't want to fall into the trap that say it's been falling at Spurs, where they stuck with the same group of players for too long and they didn't refresh it. So Kulabali is also going to be available and he's a good age. He's got the experience of the Champions League um, and he's got the physical attributes to adapt to the Premier League. I think him coming in is going to be a huge addition. Um, a, huge, a huge addition. I think you mentioned Maguire. I think the, the, reason, the reason Maguire got criticised was that, wasn't that he was poor, was that he was compared, was that he was constantly being compared to Virgil van Dijk. Nobody's Virgil van Dijk. But Harry Maguire has been absolutely outstanding for Manchester United this season and the reason why the club have got the third best defence in the league yeah no absolutely absolutely um, so we both agree that Koulibaly is the one is the one United should be targeting Diego Godin is a no-goer it's just one of those stories that pops up because 
He was previously linked with United, big club, might get him a bit of attraction from elsewhere. The agents in Inter Milan are working together to get him a move elsewhere. That, that That's what it seems to me anyway. Um, I, I just can't see, as you mentioned, the the profile that Solskjaer looks for in a player. And to add on to that, even more important is that he hasn't been performing well this season. So he's 34. Where would Where is the logic in signing Diego Godin this summer when... At the moment, Solskjaer's probably looking at his defensive options and probably isn't writing off some of their chances yet. And that goes for Lindelof and Bali, who could still prove a lot of people wrong. So he might not even look to go for a coup of Bali. He might go for someone a bit cheaper um, and that doesn't quite write off the futures of other players. But but I definitely think go all out getting coup of Bali for a series for challenging next season, um, which should be the aim for the manager and the team. Mike... Really appreciate having you on. There's that added insight from Syria when it came to the Ogaden, which um, I'm not going to sit in front of a mic and pretend I know my stuff about a league I don't watch regularly, which I think a lot of people on social media have been doing lately. There's people popping up being experts on Belgian football, and they probably never watched the 90 minutes of Belgian football in their life. No, why would they want to? I, uh, I guarantee you, when I was li- li- listening to that, and he was given the someone was given a, a player profile on, on some midfielder or striker, I was thinking this is the guy that told Chelsea and everyone about Lukaku, uh, his historian on Belgian football. Uh, <laughs> but but look, that's it anyway. Till next week, I will pick out that game as we promised, um, and we'll do a review on it. But um, thanks for your time, Mike. Really appreciate it. And hope you stay safe. Until next week. Anytime. Stay safe yourself. And everyone who's listening, uh, stay safe as well. Nice one. See you soon, Mike. Bye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.